everyone, welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah Dong, your host, and we are back now with part two of a pair of episodes on the management of antimicrobial-resistant gram-negative infections. If you aren't caught up, please take a listen to the prior episode, so that's number 76, which has a focus on some mini-cases related to AMP-C and ESBL infection. We are joined by our co-host, Dr. Hawa Alawadi, a newly graduating fellow from the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, and our discussant is Dr. Pranita Tama from Johns Hopkins. You can hear a little more about them and their febrile culture recommendations in episode 76 as well. So without further ado, we'll jump back into part two. So now we're doing part two of the GNR series. So case one, we have a 17-year-old man presenting with fevers, hydronephrosis, and blood cultures are preliminarily growing GNRs. Prelim susceptibilities via Kirby-Bauer indicate ceftriaxone resistance, and the resident had listened to the first part of the series and recommended using carbapenems empirically and um, started mirapenem. 24 hours later, the patient feels slightly better, but is still febrile. Blood cultures are then finalized as Klebsiella pneumoniae. The primary team calls for help because there are a lot of R's on the susceptibility report. And to read out or kind of list the highlights, the only susceptible drug right now is amikacin. The isolate is resistant to cefepime, ceftazidime, ceftriaxone, ciprofloxacin, Mirapenem, gentamicin, piptazo, trimsulfa. Along with the susceptibility report, I mentioned there was a carbapenemase report as well that said that IMP, VIM, NDM, KPCN, OXA48 target sequences were not detected, and that the isolate is uh, carbapenem resistance due to other mechanisms. So we'll pause here and we'll ask you. How do you approach carbapenem-resistant organisms? And um, taking care of this case, what would you recommend um, in terms of additional susceptibilities to be requested by the microlab? And how does the genetic carbapenemase susceptibility data change how you approach things as well? Okay, well, thank you. This is, um, yeah, this is a very a good case. It's sort of typical of what um, we're seeing more of nowadays. So in general, when we say something is a carbapenem-resistant enterobacterialis, this official CDC definition of that means it's resistant to at least one carbapenem, so ertapenem, mirapenem, imipenem, I guess technically doripenem, but none of us probably are testing that, um, or it's producing, a, has a confirmed carbapenemase gene. So in general, in the U.S., um, there was, the CDC did a study where they found that about um, the CDC, and then there was another um, group that, that did a study called the Crackle study. So both of these are sort of large studies of, of, of um, isolates um, in the United States that are carbapenem resistant. And they found that about, if you sort of average the results of these two groups, about half of CRE produced a carbapenemase enzyme. For the other half, it's often a combination of there's an ESBL gene or an AMC being produced in combination with maybe a porin mutation, which and porins are often somewhat specific to inhibit um, carbapenems from entering bacteria. So it's not that there's a carbapenemase, but the, there's an ESBL that hydrolyzes a bunch of non-carbapenem drugs, other beta lactams, 
And then the porin's not letting the mirror pen him in. So that's what why that might happen. So that might be what's happening in this case. If I had to just make a completely wild guess, I'd say it's an ESBL plus a porin. Now, you know, back in the day when I was um, a resident, a fellow, we didn't, it didn't really matter what the mechanism was because we truthfully only had mirapenem. We would do high dose extended infusion plus colistin or amikacin or something. But now we're actually in a really good spot where we have this almost precision medicine approach for treating CRE. So what we know is that for the carbapenemase producers, so you mentioned the KPC, our Klebsiella pneumonia carbapenemase, the NDM, which is the New Delhi metallobetalactamase, the IMP, which is the imipenemases, VIM, Verona integrin mediated carbapenemases, and OXA 48 like carbapenemases. So these five, we think of the sort of big five carbapenemase genes. And we're really in a nice place, I say, because we have drugs that can specifically target each of these resistance mechanisms. The one great new good news is that for the carb the CRE that are not carbapenemase producing, they tend to be susceptible to basically all of the new drugs we would use for these enzymes. So to give you an example, one of these drugs, ceftazidine avibactam, is effective against KPC producers, OXA48 producers, but not the VIM, NDM, and IMP. VIM, NDM, and IMP are as a group called metallobetalactamases, and, and maybe we can get into that a little bit later, but they basically need zinc at their active site. They have zinc at their active site to function, so they're a little different from the other ones. But basically, for ceftazidium abibactam, it's active against KPC OXA48. For mirapenem vaporbactam, which is another drug for the CRE, it's active against KPC, but none of the other genes. For imipenem relibactam, it's active against KPC um, producing enterobacterialis, but none of these other ones. Um, and then there's a drug called sephinerocol, which is actually active against all five of these. Now, what the good news is, whether you're talking about Ceftazavi, Miravabor, Imurelli, or Sephiterocol, they're all active against CRE that don't produce carbapenemases. So for these, there will be some tiny, tiny portion of these CRE that don't produce one of these five carbapenemases that might have a minor one. So that's a different issue. We're going to pretend they don't exist because it's rare, fortunately. But luckily, all of these drugs that target one of these carbapenemases are more will also be active against non-CPCRE. So hopefully that helps a little bit, even though I, I realize it's, it's, it is a very confusing topic and a lot of complicated names. That's that's helpful. So if if it's a metallobetalactamase, we'll, we'll talk about it in a little bit. If it's a defined enzyme that is the non-metallobetalactamase, so KPC OXA48, Ceftazavi works for both. And then with the other two, Imirel, Mira Weber, they have, um, each has kind of a, with specific enzyme, you'd use one in particular. Um, in a case like this, where most you'd expect all of them to be susceptible, do you request the microlab to run susceptibilities for all three? Um, or how do you typically approach it? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So, okay. So for example, let's, pretend that this was, actually, it doesn't matter whether it's producing a KPC or not. If it's a club pneumo, 
most likely the mechanism would be KPC producer if it produced a carbapenemase. And if it didn't, it would be one of these sort of probably ESBL and porins. So one point is, what does your micro lab have access to testing? We're very fortunate where we are, we do have um, in-house tests for all of these new drugs. Um, so we may have the luxury of testing several, but for some hospitals, they may have to pick what their hospital has testing available for. Of course, the other issue is which drugs do you have on your hospital formulary? If you have multiple drugs, you can test for them. If you don't, it becomes a little, you could test, but it might take a while before you get the drug. But what I would say is that ceftazidim avibactam is the drug that's been around the longest out of the drugs we mentioned. Um, so we often rely on that for these, carb, these carbapenem-resistant enterobacterialis. 90%, okay, so I should say that of the, not, the CRE, half of them produce a carbapenemase period, approximately. And of those half, 90% of the time, it's going to be a KPC. So your odds are, it, you know, you need KPC targeted therapy if you have no idea if this is a carbapenemase producing organism or not. Um, for ceftazidim avibactam, it definitely is active against KPCs the vast majority of the time, I'd say over 90% of the time. But there are data pretty consistently showing that if a patient is treated with ceftazavi, there's probably about a 10% chance the next time the patient um, um, has susceptibility testing done, ceftazavi is no longer going to be active. So what I would say is upfront, if it's a key, let's say it's a KPC producer, um, I'm often inclined to test for both ceftazavi and miropenem vaporbactam. And we don't have head-to-head -head clinical trials comparing these new drugs together to each other. But what I could say with Mirovabor versus Ceftazavi is that um, they both seem to be effective, but Miropen and Vaborbactam were much less likely to have subsequent isolates with resistance to Mirovabor compared to if we use Ceftazavi. For any Penemorellibactam, even though it's probably an effective drug, um, it was the last of these three beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors that become clinically available. Many of us just don't use it that much, and there's just not a lot of data reporting on its use for CRE. So if for some reason the other two drugs weren't effective or active, I think Imirelli would be a fine choice if it tested susceptible. Um, the data are just a little more limited. Now, luckily for the non-CP CRE, like in this case, um, the same would hold true where I would probably mo be most inclined to just test Ceftazavi and Miravabor. We do have data indicating that all of these newer drugs are just more effective than what we used to do in the past with extended infusion, carbapenem, plus a second agent. Um, so, you know, even if the MIC was four and there's no carbapenemase and people said, well, I'd rather just use extended infusion Miro, um, it's probably going to be fine and have sufficient drug levels for MICs of four, I would argue that we do have sufficient clinical trial data from when these newer drugs were studied that suggests that that approach seems to be suboptimal to picking one of these newer drugs. So for this particular case, um, we did end up testing susceptibility for most of these drugs, um, and it was ceftazidime, avibactam susceptible, imipenem, relibactam susceptible, and also susceptible to mirapenem, vaporbactam. 
And in this particular case, the patient was initially treated empirically with amikacin and ceftazidimavibactam, both initially while we were awaiting this data. And once the susceptibilities came out showing that the isolate was susceptible to ceftazidimavibactam, um, he was switched to ceftazidimavibactam alone. It became kind of an issue around the time of discharge and thinking about how to OPAT with these newer agents. And so I was wondering if you could briefly kind of speak to your experience on using these agents and access to them in the OPAT or outpatient setting. Yeah, you know, I think, um, so, uh, you know, just back to this patient, I will say if it's septaz susceptible, immurelli susceptible, miravabor susceptible, all of them are, are reasonable choices. So I think, you know, depending on which one you have in formulary, you know, in your institutional price, some of them may be cheaper than others. And every every hospital, the price point's a little different. Uh, that's probably how I would make the decision. You know, obviously, if the patient's on like valproic acid, maybe imirelli doesn't make sense because, again, it is still imipenem-based. If you had a very severe penicillin allergy, then maybe a drug like ceftazavi may not be the best choice, right? So I would sort of make the decision based on those nuances of the patient. Um, the OPEC pet question is tricky because a lot of it has to do with, I think for hospitals, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think where you're located, people tell me that resistance is not as bad as it, we would expect it to be for an East Coast city. <laughs> but for places like New York, for Baltimore, we do have a fair amount of resistance. So we end up using these drugs quite a bit more than we wish we did. So you know, for us, for OPAT, it used to be a problem early on, but now that this sort of pathway has been carved out, where we will have patients who go home on these drugs, um, for us, it's no longer an issue. I do think that for some OPAT places, you know, particularly with the IDSA guidance pushing for these newer drugs when these resistance mechanisms, et cetera, are, are demonstrated, are these higher MICs, that seems to have helped a little bit with saying, you know, we can't just do colistin and miropenem or, or whatever it is we used to do before. So it, it seems like it hasn't been as much of a challenge for us anymore. Uh, you know, I think that a lot of OPAD groups just work with their sort of their liaisons in the outpatient pharmacy world, um, insurance companies, et cetera. Um, and, and then eventually it just becomes a lot easier once these drugs are um, accepted agents that people may need to go home on. And, you know, over time, you know, again, I'm, I, I direct stewardship, so it's not like I want to use these drugs a lot, but, you know, by any means, but we're only going to be using more and more of them. So I think this will gradually be less and less of a problem. So unfortunately, I don't have any great advice for how to deal with that issue, except to say that most institutions suffer with it for a little bit and then it becomes easy. I hope it'll get better soon. We were very lucky to have, I think, good case managers and pharmacists who made it happen. Um, right. But it was um, a little more challenging than, let's say, getting stuff triaxone. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask one question that stood out to me when I saw this? At some point along the way, I think I had learned in my brain or made this connection that generally if a patient is miropenem resistant, that there are ser- scenarios where... It, it wouldn't matter what that result was that you would not expect Miro Vabor to have activity. Is that specific to Pseudomonas? Correct. Yeah. So it's a bit of a, a tricky little nuance thing, but basically regular Miropenem, the 
breakpoint for Pseudomonas is two, and that's based on a, a dose of one gram Q8 as a 30-minute infusion. Now, there are PKPD studies saying if you gave two grams Q8 as an extended infusion, so over three hours, you might be able to target MICs of up to eight. Um, so technically, with high-dose extended infusion meropenem, you may be able to target MICs of up to eight. Um, now, meropenem vaporbactam was studied as two grams Q8 as an extended infusion, and the breakpoint for that is eight. So it's a little bit of this sort of, um, I think semantics is the wrong word, but I don't know, whatever the right word is. It's one of those situations where there's going to be times for pseudomonas where it seems not susceptible to meropenem, but susceptible to meropenem vaporbactam. And it's simply this sort of artificial reason that you're giving a higher dose extended infusion of the drug. But I think what the issue is that for very drug-resistant pseudomonas, um, we have studies, because a lot of the new drugs like septolazine tazobactam, septazine avibactam, we do have studies, whether it's trial data or observational data, indicating that these newer drugs perform much better than extended infusion meropenem plus a second agent. Um, so what I would say to summarize is that vaporbactam has very little to basically know additive value over meropenem alone for pseudomonas. So if it's pseudomonas, if it's a pseudomonas, it's meropenem resistant, I wouldn't torture a micro lab into testing meropenem vaporbactam because that even if it looks like an S, it's not really an S because the vaporbactam isn't really overcoming any you know, unusual mechanisms of resistance for pseudomonas. Um, and the CLSI, so the, the, the group that establishes breakpoints in the United States, um, uh, they actually don't have a breakpoint for Miro Vapor for pseudomonas for this reason. So, so basically, uh, unfortunately, you're, you're absolutely right, and thank you for bringing this up. For pseudomonas, I wouldn't think of Miro Vapor as a viable option, just like ceftolazine tazobactam, which is a very good pseudomonas drug, I wouldn't expect it to be active against the carbapenem-resistant enterobacterialis, so it's not a drug that I would routinely be testing. Great. So that was case one. So we have another case. Um, this is a 78-year-old case two. is a 78-year-old woman who presents with a history of recurrent UTIs, is admitted with altered mental status, dysuria, and was found to have pyelonephritis. Urine cultures are growing gram-negatives. She was started on cefepime empirically. However, 24 hours later, urine cultures came back with a meropenem-resistant enterobacter cloaceae. And the susceptibility report here is that the enterobacter is only susceptible to amicacin and nitrofurantoin. It is otherwise resistant to meropenem, cefepime, ceftriaxone, ciprofloxacin, and gentamicin, and trimsulfa, and piptazo. Um, along with the susceptibility report, we have another carbapenemase um, target DNA sequence report, and this time the NDM target DNA sequence was detected. So how do you approach this carbapenem-resistant enterobacterialis case, and how is it different from the prior one? Yeah, so this one is, um, yes, this is different. We have a gene that's been identified. Um, so we can sort of think about what, 
what drugs may or may not work. I, I will say in the new IDSA guidance, we sort of separated the KPCs into a question, the NDMs into a question, um, the OXA48-like um, enzymes into a question, just so that it's easier um, for, for as, as uh, clinicians to kind of know where to look in the guidance, because it, it is a very long document, especially with combining all six organisms. Um, so hopefully it makes it a little easier. But, you know, the NDM, again, it stands for New Delhi Metallobetalactamase. Often when we see them, it's in patients who've received medical care in South Asia. Um, so countries like India or, or the Middle East is often where, um, in our institution, where the patients are coming from. And that's that's pretty characteristic. I will say they're spreading more and more that we, we do see patients now who have no epidemiologic exposure, so we're not really sure where they picked it up. Um, so it's probably only a matter of time before we can sort of stop using, um, you know, basic, the epidemiologic exposure as, as what's going to be likely or not likely. Um, but, you know, again, NDMs, um, you know, just to kind of finish that off, NDMs we see here. VIMS are in the same metallobetalactamase group. We don't see them in the U.S. very much. They're quite rare, less than one, very, very much less than 1%. And the IMPs, um, they sound like cute little gremlins, <laughs> but um, they're, they're not cute. Um, they're, they're very much sort of limited almost to Japan. Um, it, it's extremely rare in the U.S. So the real ones to think about in this metallobetalactamase group are the NDMs. So they're unfortunate in that there's no current beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitor. So not ceftolazantaza, which, as I said, isn't really effective against any CRE. But no ceftazavi, no meropenem vaberbactam, no imipenem relibactam. Um, the options are the combination of ceftazavi plus astreonem are the drugs of fitrical. So for ceftazavi and astreonem, the way this works is that as um, it likes to target penicillin binding protein three. So it's a beta-lactam. It's been available since the late 1990s. And the way it works is that it, it you know, attaches the PBP3, causes havoc, the bacteria die. Um, for metallo-beta-lactamases like NDMs, even in the presence of an NDM enzyme, the as is able to do what it needs to do. It's unaffected by NDM. So that's great. The problem is the NDM enzymes are produced by genes that sit on, sit on plasmids generally, and usually they also um, have ESBL genes or MC genes or KPC genes or OXA48, like, so any of one of many or several different um, types of beta-lactamases. And those enzymes are able to hydrolyze the S3NM. So before the S3NM makes it to um, its target, these other enzymes can, can hydrolyze it. So but when you give astrinam as well as ceftazidim avibactam, so let's pretend the ceftazidim didn't exist because it's not doing anything in this. It's just we don't have the drug astrinam avibactam currently. But when you give the two, what happens is the avibactam is lower molecular weight. It diffuses through the bacterial porin quickly, binds to um, you know the ESBLs and KPCs in the background, whatever else is there. Let's say in this case, just ESBL, it binds to it. It, it, it doesn't let the ESBL hydrolyze the astreonem. So the astreonem can nicely make it to the PBP3. So in the absence of having astreonem adibactam as a single drug right now, I will say that compound has um, completed 
phase three clinical trials. So hopefully will be an option as a single agent um, sometime in the near future. But in the meantime, what many of us do is the combination of ceftazabi and estrinam. In the guidance, we give some suggestions on how to dose the two drugs. Um, it makes sense if you need the abibactin to present, protect the estrinam, it makes sense to infuse them together rather than sequentially. And we kind of talk about um, the so, some of the data that suggests that the estrinam is probably most effective if given every six hours, the septazium abibactin every eight hours. Unfortunately, both we would suggest as an extended infusion to so over three hours. So you can imagine it can be somewhat challenging for patients, for nursing, for pharmacy, um, but it's probably one of the better options we have right now that would work against NDM producers. The other option would be the drug cefiterocol. Um, cefiterocol is basically a cephalosporin um, conjugated to a siderophore. And what siderophores are, are these high affinity um, iron chelating um, drugs. So basically what happens is the cefiterocol, um, the siderophore part, siderophore part um, finds some free iron in the human being that it's the drug is injected to, binds to it, and then sneaks into bacteria through the iron transport channels. Then it ditches that iron. It doesn't need it anymore. And then the cefiterocol can be active, and it, it happens to be the, its main site of action is also PVP3, like as M. So cefiterocol was very exciting when it came out because it's active against all CRE, regardless of carbapenemase producing or not, NDM or KPC or OXA48, all of them as well as Pseudomonas, Stenotrophomonas, Acinetobacter, so all the non-fermenters. So it was kind of a nice sort of, you know, one drug for everything re resistance, basically. The clinical results have been a little variable, particularly for the non-fermenters, and I should say specifically for Acinetobacter. Um, for NDM-producing isolates, in various cohorts, it seems that it's active against um, half, to maybe 70, 80% of NDM producers. So it's not sort of this perfect drug that will always be active. Um, there have been reports of resistance emerging on cefiterocol. Um, we, we had a patient who came from the United Arab Emirates. Um, she had an NDM producer, she was treated with cefiterocol, and then she re a, a, another E. coli that was carbapenem resistant was recovered not long after starting cefiterocol and found to be um, pretty um, significantly resistant to cefiterocol. Um, and this is not a one-off. Unfortunately, there have been several cases like this. So I think that cefiterocol is a reasonable drug for these, um, these NDM producers. Um, unfortunately, I do think we just have to keep our eyes, keep an eye on it because the emergence of resistance has definitely been described. For septazabiestrinum, I will say that because we haven't had a good way of testing susceptibility to the combination, it's hard to know if resistance to this combination is less common or if because we're not really having great ways of testing for it if we're just not recognizing it. Um, there is a method, the last thing I'll just say, called the disc broth elution method, which is kind of a, a brand new test that the Clinical and Laboratory Standards Institute evaluated um, where, where they, um, based on the, the results of a multi-center test, it did seem that the results were pretty reproducible. So that might be the sort of refer the standard testing many of us will adopt. 
to see if the combination of ceftazabi and estrinam is truly active against um, you know, a specific NDM producer. So the quick take-home points I would say is, if you see an NDM producer or you have a patient who's come from South Asia, the Middle East is coming pretty ill and you're worried about this mechanism, because unfortunately in those parts of the world, um, there is a pretty high prevalence of NDM producers. The drugs I would suggest are either the combination of ceftazabi as trianem, arsifitrical. I personally, this is just Pranita speaking, not the IDSA guidance, but I personally am biased towards um, going with ceftazabi and as trianem if I had to pick. And, and that's because of the quick evolution of resistance, as far as we know, with cifidrical. Yeah, I think we've had a few failures now for patients we've taken care of with cifidrical. Uh, with the ceftazabia as trianem, just again, in, in our you know experience as a single center hospital, we've just had more success with it. Um, I also think there's sort of more of a biologically plausible explanation as to why this combination should be effective against that the various enzymes we we know kind of run with NDMs. Okay, that makes sense. And and for this patient, um, we requested cefidrocal susceptibilities, and it was intermediate. So the patient did eventually get treated um, with the combination of ceftazidime, abibactam, and estrianam as well. Um, unfortunately, the patient was very ill for other reasons as well, and um, didn't end up doing well, but eventually cleared their cultures. Um, I think that's a wrap on all the cases. This was super helpful and informative, and I learned a lot. And we really appreciate your time and coming to talk to us about this and um, sharing your experience. Well, thank you so much. No, this was great. And I know this is a, a hard topic. Um, it's, it's an exciting area because there's just new data constantly coming out. And I, I get embarrassed when I see things I wrote or said like one year ago. <laughs> I'm like, oh gosh, that's totally been disproven now. Um, so I'm sure um, if I ever listen to this podcast in a year from now. Um, but, well, it'll be time marked. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to just time it. I, I would never, I, I don't like listening to my voice. I definitely won't listen to the podcast. But, um, but yeah, I do think, you know, and it's also very humbling as to, well, it's also with the IDC guidance why we chose not to say things like recommend or strong, mm -hmm. you know, because the truth is the data is evolving and we sort of as a, as a community just have to do with our, our best with what data we have yeah. um, and to recognize that data may change and we should change with it. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> thanks again. Such a great take home point. So similar to part one, I was going to give just a quick highlight of some of the high yield take home points from the management cases and the newest IDSA AMR guidance, which you can find online. And we will also be linking it in the episode notes and the consult notes. Case one today featured a teenager with carbapenem resistant Klebsiella pneumoniae bacteremia. And case two was an older woman with polynephritis due to mirapenem resistant enterobacter. So this episode was focused on carbapenem resistant Enterobacterialis infections, CRE, as opposed to the AMPC and ESBL we were focused on in, in part one of this pair of episodes. We are going to have some infographics incoming for the drugs mentioned in this episode, and as noted in the current IDSA guidance from this time, which is summer of 2023. So remember that ceftazidime avibactam Mirapenem vaporbactam and imipenem psilostatin relobactam are the preferred treatment options for infections 
outside of the urinary tract caused by CRE when you don't have carbapenemase testing results available. We talked a bit about KPC producing infections with the drug options of mirapenem, vabrobactam, ceftazidime, avibactam, and again, imipenem, psilostatin, brelobactam, with cefitercol as an alternative if you need it. And then for NDM cases, like the patient in case two today, the treatment options that we were discussing were ceftazidime, avibactam, plus estrianam, or cefitercol monotherapy, which are the preferred options for NDM and other metallobilactamase-producing infections. Thank you so much to Hara Pranita for tackling this huge topic and the alphabet soup that comes along with MDR infections. Don't forget to check out our website, febrilepodcast.com, where we will update the consult notes, which are written compliments of the show with links to references, our library of ID infographics, and a link to our merch store. Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time.